This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. By the book on BFM 89.9. Hello and welcome to By the Book. I'm Sharmila Ganesan and of course as always with me my fellow lover of science fiction, Lichwe Lin. Hello. And today we are very excited because we're joined by author Andy Weir, um, whom you might recognize as the writer of The Martian, which was also, of course, made into a movie starring Matt Damon. But he's here with us today to talk about his latest book, Project Hail Mary, which just came out uh, in May. Thank you for joining us, Andy. Hi, thanks for having me. We both just finished reading the book and um, we loved this this tale of interstellar adventure, trying to save the world, um, this idea of um, a soul man setting out into the, into the galaxy and so on. Um, very classic science fiction stuff. Tell us about your process of coming up with the plot for Project Hail Mary. Um, was there a particular starting point? Did the science come first or did the story... Well, it's interesting. Usually, um, my ideas come from me thinking about something science-related. Like um, for the Martian, it, the idea came about because I was thinking, how could we do a, a put humans on Mars? How could we do a, a humans to Mars mission? How do we get them there? How do we get them back? How do we land them? All the just working up the mission profile, not for a story, just because I'm a nerd. And um, then I started thinking about all the things that could go wrong, and that ultimately led me to coming up with the idea for The Martian. Um, for Artemis, I was thinking about um, what is humanity, or Artemis, uh, you know, not nearly as many people have read that. It's my second book, and it takes place in a city on the moon. And that idea came from, I was thinking, what is humanity's first city that's not on Earth going to be like? Is it going to be in orbit? Is it going to be on the moon? Is it going to be on Mars? Where? And so I started speculating on that and like, how would they build the city? Why would they build the city? What's the economic reason? And so on. And that ultimately led to Artemis. Project Hail Mary was a little bit different. It's a, a collection of story, idea, story ideas uh, taken from the junkyard of my mind. Basically, these are all story ideas that I had at various times, but none of them could really carry a story. And so I just kind of didn't follow up on them. And so one of them was the idea of a guy who wakes up aboard a spaceship with amnesia. That was just an idea I had, but I didn't have anything to go with it. And another one was a spacecraft fuel that can do mass conversion, turn mass into light and use that as propulsion, which is possible by the laws of physics. Now, the mechanism that that would happen by is, I don't know, but it is it doesn't violate any laws of physics. And I'm like, well, that'd be a cool spacecraft fuel. And I also want to, you know, write something with like alien life. And so um, I, I, I had all these various ideas. And, and um, one thing I was really fascinated by was this fuel, the idea of a fuel that could mass convert. I mean, if we had something like that, just a few hundred kilograms of fuel would be all you'd need to go to Mars. I mean, it would be incredible. And so I was thinking, okay, maybe I could write a story about this fuel and the people who are using it. And maybe we start colonizing Mars or whatever. And I was thinking, the problem is, like, how do I explain this fuel? This would be a technology beyond anything that we have. And we're like, nowhere near. It's too implausible to say some mad scientist invents it. It's just so off the map. And I thought, like, um, I had originally, I'd, earlier I'd had an idea for an alien technology that humanity finds called black matter, and black matter absorbs all electromagnetic light, 
and turns it into mass in the form of more black matter. And then you can reverse the process of the magnetic field. You can cause it to release that energy as light. And that was like an early version of this fuel I had. But I was like, there's no way we could invent that. I don't want to make a story that takes place 5,000 years from now. I said, it could be like maybe some alien technology that we find. But then I'm like, well, then where are the aliens? Like, why wouldn't there, you know, do that? So I, then I then I thought like, hmm, black matter is kind of like life, right? It, it takes energy and makes more of itself. Well, that's what we do. I mean, so, uh, you know, we take energy and we make humans out of it. And so I was thinking, well, what if it was a life form, you know, just a naturally evolved life form? It would be an alien life form, but not like a take me to your leader alien. It would be just a single celled organism like mold or algae. I'm like, okay. And since it has the ability to do this, what, why does it do this? Well, because it wants to do interstellar travel. It, so I, I came up with just kind of all at once, I came up with, oh, okay, it's a life form that lives on the surface of stars. It's just like algae in our ocean, but it's like a space algae that lives on stars. And it spores out in all directions to seed itself to other stars. That makes sense from an evolution standpoint. And that's why it collects so much energy. It's got access to a ton of energy because it lives on a star and it can collect a bunch of energy, needs to store it in a very compressed area and then release that energy to propel itself interstellar distances. Okay, that's great. And I said, all right, so that's how we get a hold of this this technology. It's just a naturally evolved life form. And some of it is in our system, maybe. This was my original idea. Some of it maybe is in our system. We find it, we start farming it, and then we start using it to travel around the solar system and stuff like that. And I thought, oh, we need to be really careful, though. We wouldn't want any of that to get into our sun, because that would be a disaster. Wait a minute, that's exactly what has to happen. That disasters are where stories come from. So forget all that other crap. We first discover it because it's already in our sun, and that's kind of where the idea came from and then of course so that for those of you who haven't read it yet um yeah that's the main problem that's going on is there's this space mold basically it's not a threat to the sun the sun doesn't care about it any more than the ocean is threatened by algae but it is absorbing so much of the solar output that it's starting to affect weather on earth and they calculate that in 30 years the earth biosphere will no longer be able to live because there's just not enough solar energy hitting the planet. So they need to find a solution to that problem. <laughs> and all of which I think brings us quite neatly to uh, the structure of the story in some ways, because as you mentioned, it, it's a novel that I think crams a lot of those ideas into the story as, as you go along. Um, but the structure also feels very deliberate because it alternates between the present in space and the attempts to problem solve there and flashbacks on Earth um, and the realization of the problem and in some ways the research that gets you to the point where you can problem solve. Um, why did you choose to approach the story this way with the, with the flashbacks? Yeah, um, so first off I should tell you that I'm, I'm a big old hypocrite because um, I always tell writers don't use flashbacks. Flashbacks are a lazy form of writing. It's for lazy writers who aren't willing to tell a story linearly. And so here I am using a bunch of flashbacks, right? But I picked it because um, the nature of the story is such that there's a lot of interesting 
mysteries that unfold on Earth before the mission as they figure out what astrophage is, come up with a plan to how to deal with it, and then they have to build this big spaceship. Ultimately, for those who haven't read the book yet, they realize that all of the stars in our local area are also getting dimmer, and they can see that just with telescopes, and that's because of astrophage has infected all of them, except Tau Ceti, which is 12 light years away, and that's a star that's easily within the area that it should have been affected, but it's not. And so they come up with the idea of like, okay, we're going to make a ship, we're going to have it powered by astrophage, and we're going to send it all the way to Tau Ceti with people aboard to figure out why Tau Ceti is immune to astrophage. And then hopefully we can duplicate that in our own solar system so that we don't all die. Um, so there's a lot of interesting stuff that happens on Earth before the ship even launches, before the ship's even made. And I wanted to show all that. But if I told it linearly, if I told the story just in chronological order, then the first third of the book or so would be this breakneck pace of just every scene is like, okay, this happens. And then the next scene is like two years later. And then the next scene is like, oh, meanwhile, here are like 12 other characters that are all in Russia. And it would just it would be really disjoint and difficult to read. And then once they launched the ship, you would never see any of those characters again. And it would just be really unsatisfying. So I figured um, I would do it with flashbacks and that way I can keep both stories going at the same time and you get to spend time with those Earthside characters throughout the book. My main thing I realized about flashbacks, what I hate so much about them is they're often used to just do raw exposition or character backstory. Like you'll be watching some exciting movie or reading some exciting book and everything's exciting. And then suddenly there's a flashback to how the main character met his wife. I'm like, I don't care. I don't care about that. Get back to the interesting stuff. And so um, for me, a flashback is often kind of like you're out playing with your friends and your mom calls you into the house to clean your room. You know, it's, it's like, uh, now I got to do this. It's like doing your taxes, you know, it's like, oh, come on. So um, I decided, well, for my flashbacks, every flashback, first off, I, I don't spend a lot of time in flashbacks, just like a scene and here and scene there. Second off, every one of the flashbacks is relevant to what's going on in the main story. And in the flashbacks, there's an unfolding mystery. So the reader is getting new information about what astrophage is and what it's doing and how it works every time there's a flashback. So hopefully the reader's engaged and interested in the flashbacks also. And if they aren't, they don't last very long. So <laughs> so this is a little bit of a spoiler. So one of the main <laughs> things uh, that many people I think will particularly enjoy about the story is the main character, Ryland Grace's encounter with an alien. Um, and I was wondering how you went about um, coming up with, with, I mean, really how that alien would look, how it behaves, given that there's so much of, uh, I know, so many so many depictions of aliens in popular culture, right? Um, yeah. How did you come up with that? Well, um, that was fun. I mean, so I sort of, I, I decided that, um, you know, the, for those of you who haven't read the book and want everything spoiled, um, <laughs> Ryland is, you know, he's, his, he and his spaceship are in the Tau City system and he woke up from like a coma, an induced coma, and he finds there's another ship in the system and it's an alien spaceship. Um, and there's this alien race that lives around the star 40 Eridani, which is a real star, and they live on the first planet of that system. And that 
40 Eridani B, I think is the name of it in real life. It's a real exoplanet. That planet actually exists. And um, they have the same problem. Astrophage has infected their sun, and their biosphere is also going to collapse. And they also notice that Tau Ceti isn't affected, so they also sent a ship. Um, they're not, uh, I wanted to really do things my own way, though. So, uh, first off, I decided I definitely do not want this alien to be comfortable in an Earth like environment. I I want it to be absolutely deadly to him if he's, you know, in our environment and absolutely deadly to Ryland if he's in the alien's environment. So I, I, I started from the bottom up on designing him. I said, like, okay, what do I know about that homeworld? I'm like, I have decided there's a biosphere on this planet. Um, well, I started calling the planet Arid, E-R-I-D, because it's a lot easier than 40 Eridani B. <laughs> um, and Arid, what we do know about it is it's in a very tight orbit around its star. It only goes around, it goes around once every 46 days. So it's closer to its star than Mercury is to the sun. It's very, very close. And second off, um, it's about eight times Earth's mass. So it weighs about eight times as much as our planet. And I did the math. And if it has about the same density as Earth, that means the surface gravity would be about two Gs. I'm like, okay. So starting to get some information. Iridians will be strong. Iridian, that's a person from Arid, right? An alien. I'm like, okay, Iridians will be strong. Then I realized, okay, it's an orbit around its star. It's really, really close to the star. So it's going to be really, really hot, right? I'm like, okay, it's going to be so hot that water would not be a liquid, Right. I, I decided based on atmospheric stuff, whatever, I decided that it was 210 degrees on average on the surface. That's their room temperature, 210 Celsius. That's their room temperature. And I'm like, well, that's more than the boiling point of water, right? Well, no, because the boiling point of water is dependent on the pressure, the atmospheric pressure. So I decided, all right, they have 29 atmospheres of pressure on the surface, 29 times our atmospheric pressure. When you do that, water is a liquid at 210 degrees Celsius. So now I have liquid water for my biosphere, but it still makes sense for it to be super close to the star. Then I decided, okay, well, if you're that, if a planet is that close to a star, it's basically getting sandblasted by the star. The solar wind from the, from the star is just blasting the atmosphere off. The only way you can have an atmosphere at all when you're that close to a star is if your atmosphere is made out of fairly heavy molecules. Venus, for instance, has a very thick atmosphere because it's almost all carbon dioxide, which is pretty heavy. So I decided um, Arid's atmosphere would be ammonia, which is very heavy. Um, and so I'm like, okay, so it's 29 atmospheres of pure ammonia, 210 degrees Celsius. I like it. No human could survive that. <laughs> mm. And then I said, like, well, in order to keep that atmosphere, it would need a strong magnetic field. So the planet's spinning very fast because that's what makes magnetic. So bit by bit, I just started building up. And among other things, I decided, well, with 29 atmospheres of pure ammonia, none of the sunlight is, it's like being at the bottom of an ocean. None of the sunlight is going to get to the surface. So how does that biosphere work? Well, it's like the ocean. Things up high in the atmosphere like absorb sunlight and metabolize it, then things below them eat it, eat those and, and bottom up. And the apex predators would be on the surface. And that's what the Iridians are, of course, just like we're the apex predators on Earth. But no light gets to the surface, so Iridians don't have eyes. They don't know what sight is. In fact, our, our Iridian character, who gets nicknamed Rocky, is uh, he's really surprised when he learns about how humans can can see. And he says, let me get this, because he can hear. They've got very good hearing. They've got echolocation. 
And he's like, let me get this straight. You can hear light. (laughs) Anyway, so I had a lot of fun putting together the biology, how they work, just building it up from, you know, okay, start with the planet. That was probably a longer and more rambling answer than you'd hoped for, but... No, but it was absolutely fascinating to read about. So no complaints here. Uh, We are speaking to Andy Weir, who is the author of, um, well, previously The Martian, but today we're speaking about his latest book, Project Hail Mary, which is a story about um, a potential threat to the world uh, through... A space mold, really, or space algae would be the closest thing we can describe it as. We'll be back after a quick break. You're listening to Buy the Book, BFM 89.9. Be free-minded, BFM 89.9. Welcome back. You're listening to Buy the Book with Sharmila and Lynn. And today we're joined by Andy Weir, who is the award-winning author of The Martian and uh, most recently Project Hail Mary, which came out in May. And that's what we're talking about today. And we've spent the first half of the show uh, sort of setting the scene about um, a lot of the science stuff, a lot of um, how this world came about. Um, I did want to ask Andy about this idea of scientific accuracy? Because you've said before that that's important to you when it comes to your books. How do you keep the science in the books? Um, That balance between, I guess, accurate and understandable. Do you find that a particular challenge with um, any any specific moments in this book? Um, It wasn't that hard. I mean, it's always a bit of a challenge to explain science to the reader, but I don't let the complexity of the science get in the way of choosing good plots like so if there's something awesome that i think oh this would be awesome then i will find a way to explain the science to the reader it may take me a while and i might have to take a few different runs at it before i get something that works well but i you know i put a lot of effort into explaining the science without like talking down to the reader and without overwhelming them with information right so that's that's kind of a thing that's really important to me um, it's also really important to me, just my particular writing style, to be scientifically accurate. That doesn't mean I need other stories to be accurate. Like, I enjoy, you know, high-concept science fiction out of Star Trek, Star Wars, Doctor Who. Um, you know, so I don't need science fiction to be accurate for me to enjoy it, but that's the type that I write. And I do go all in on that. I, I try to go... I mean, there's always a little bit of hand-waving in any of my stories. You know, I'm always like, eh, I'm just going to not think about that little problem, whatever. But um, yeah, I try to stay as accurate to science as possible. And a lot of the science in the book is really uh, told and understood through the lead character, right? Ryland Grace, because uh, he's the central scientist who is tasked with solving the problem. And um, with that, though, he has a very everyman quality. He's relatable. He's often funny. Um, He acknowledges his flaws pretty frequently. Um, You know, what made you want to write him this way as opposed to a more typical hero? I think at one point there's a reference to uh, somebody plugging holes with their biceps in space, you know, and um, (laughs) and so uh, there's a choice made, right? Not to write that guy and instead to write this guy. Well, the the super heroic space dude thing is kind of a trope. It's kind of boring. And also, I don't know about you, but I don't identify with that hero. I don't, I don't put myself mentally in his place because I'm not like that. You know, most people aren't these amazing heroes, right? And so I wanted, I wanted a character that people could really identify with. Uh, Ryland is, was, I mean, we learned through the book, he was, he's not really qualified for this mission. 
he's not really he's not the first choice he's not the he's not the thousandth choice it was a uh, some quirks of luck that ended up with him being the guy on the mission and um he's I think we've all been in situations where we feel like I'm just not qualified for what I'm doing. And you feel completely overwhelmed and people understand what that's like. And it makes them empathize with Ryland. Also, he's scared. It's a, it's a scary situation. He's not some, you know, super macho hero. He's afraid for his life and he's sad if he, you know, and, and, and I think we can all, uh, we can all identify with that too. We've all been scared. We've all been scared of our responsibilities. We've all been afraid of letting people down. And we've all been just physically scared for our lives at times. Maybe a close call car accident or, you know, you tripped and fell down the stairs, caught yourself on the railing at the last second. But one way or another, there have been times when you've been terrified for your life. And uh, so we all empathize with that. I wanted to make a character that people would kind of say, like, "I, I get it. I know how he's feeling. And as that point of view character, practically everything that we know and see of the other character, Rocky, um, the alien, is through Ryland's eyes. So with that specific way of writing and telling the story, um, how did you give, how did you work out Rocky's personality, making it distinct, making it interesting? You know, his personality, that was really easy. Like I had to put a lot of work into Ryland. I had to think about things, rewrite things, all sorts of stuff. But Rocky's personality just flowed nice and simply. I think part of it is because he speaks broken English. And so you can kind of hide a lot behind that. You know, he appears to have a bunch of depth because you know he's only communicating a small percentage of what he's thinking. And so the reader then just assumes there's this rich, complex backstory to him. And I didn't come up with any of that right <laughs> so, <laughs> um he's also i guess i guess his manner of speech is kind of childlike and so you i mean even though he's very intelligent and definitely an adult and stuff but his manner of speech is a little childlike so you you feel a warm spot for him maybe because he's kind of like a kid but also he's a little snarky and when he starts learning um sarcasm and starts you know, throwing shade at Ryland, you know, being a little belligerent here and there. It's funny. You like it because you're like, yeah, Rocky, you tell him. <laughs> I was deeply fond of Rocky. <laughs> oh, thank you. Yeah. yeah, he really came out well. I say he, but of course, Rocky's a hermaphrodite. I mean, Rocky lays eggs, not during the story, but that's how his species reproduces. So, um, but yeah, I wanted him to be likable. And so that mission accomplished. I had no idea how much people were going to love him. I get, you know, I get a lot of fan mail now about, you know, oh, I, I would die for Rocky. <laughs> you know, it's just like people love Rocky. Oh, I want to. I deeply want to see a movie with Rocky. I, I already do. Well, they're working on it. Yeah. <laughs> So, uh, which leads us really to our next question, because um, I, I found the, the book a very cinematic read. Um, you know, while I've never been on the inside of a spaceship, I've seen it in film, but, you know, uh, my only real experience is imaginary. And yet I could imagine a lot of the scenes. I felt as if every time I returned to the book, as if I was um, returning to almost a very vivid depiction of something I could see it. And um, I was just wondering whether that was something that's always been inherent in how you write or whether um, you were perhaps more aware of this as a possibility since The Martian. Um, yeah, and, and how that impacts the way you go about things. 
Um, well, I think I'm just a fairly cinematic writer. I guess my, my stories kind of have that quality. Most of the fiction, I mean, I've read a lot of books, but I would say most of the fiction I've consumed has been a visual medium, either TV or movies. Um, so maybe that's, I kind of tend to write things that are similar to that. Um, I definitely did not have a movie adaptation in mind while I was writing the book. I always make sure not to do that because I, I, I've always felt like if you write a book with the idea that it's going to be made into a movie, you're probably going to make a bad book. Um, you, if you're writing a book, write a book. If you want to write a movie, write a screenplay, write a movie. You can do that. Nobody's stopping you. But um, a book, if you limit yourself to things that would be convenient for movie making, then you take away a bunch of cool stuff. Like for instance, um, in, in the, in Project Hail Mary, you know, Rocky, his species, they communicate with these five different sets of vocal cords inside their body. And it's like whale song. It's like, and they have five of them. So they actually speak in chords and notes and stuff like that. Now, in the book, I portrayed that as like initially, it's just like a bunch of notes. And then Ryland writes a program to identify the notes and then spit out what words, once he learns what a word is, he puts that in his database and so on. And then after a while, Ryland just straight up learns enough of Rocky's language so that they can have kind of pigeon conversations. So by the end of the book, I mean, Rocky is just speaking his own language and Ryland can understand it and Ryland's speaking English and Rocky can understand it. And so that's how they do it. So in the writing, that's really easy. In the writing, uh, in a you know narrative fiction, all I had to do was put Rocky's lines in italic and the reader understands, oh, italic means he's speaking his own language, but Ryland can understand it and this is what he's saying. What are we gonna do in the movie? I don't know. How are we going to deal with that? I don't know. Not my problem. <laughs> it's the director's problem. <laughs> so like if I was trying to write a book with the idea of it becoming a movie, I would have like stumbled on that. I would have said like, oh, I can't put this in because it won't work in the film, but it really worked in the book. And so my job is to write the book. <laughs> so speaking of that, um, the last 10 years, I would say, has actually been a really rich and interesting time for the genre of science fiction in the first place. Um, and, and sort of marks that time when when I think you started becoming a name in the scene as well. Um, I was wondering what you think are some of the most exciting or, or interesting things that are currently happening within the genre. Well, the release of my book, Project Hail Mary, is <laughs> the most important thing going on right now. No, um, uh, I, I'm happy to see, well, let me tell you what I didn't like. What I didn't like is over the last 10 years, science fiction got really co-opted by these dystopian novels. It's just nonstop, like miserable fascist dystopias. Every, every view of the future is just, oh, the whole planet's going to be a fascist dictatorship within 100 years, and only teenagers doing a bunch of stupid stuff can save the day. And I, I'm like, I don't. I don't like dystopia for a number of reasons. One thing is I, I'm fairly optimistic. I, am, I especially have a very high opinion of humanity. I think we're pretty awesome. And I think that by and large, we make the world a better place every hundred years. If you check, it's better than the previous hundred. I think we can all agree that 2020 kind of sucked, but I would rather live through 2020 again than live through 1920 with overt racism and um, typhoid fever killing my friends and, you know, 
no antibiotics and just, yeah, I would rather live through 2020 again. We are even like the worst year in, during my lifespan is better than an arbitrary year a hundred years ago. <laughs> so, um, so I don't buy into dystopia. I don't like that gloomy kind of assumption about humanity that comes with it. And I also uh, think it's just cheesy. It's tropish. You know, they're just, it, it's so easy. You say like, okay, fascists are in charge of the world. These downtrodden poor people are opposed to the fascists there. Now I don't need to explain to the reader who the good guys or the bad guys are. I can just move on with my story. Okay. Yeah. There's no complexity in that. So what I'm happy to see is that that's finally starting to fade away. Um, Dystopia is kind of done for now. It's not done, done, but it's like fading away. The Hunger Games finished you know, Maze Runner kind of finished the, you know, Divergent. Yeah, it just on and on and on all these like, and and so those, those movie sagas are done. They have all finished their final movie, I think maybe. And people aren't really making new ones to backfill because they realize that fad is kind of over. And I'm happy about that. So now we're seeing more optimistic sci-fi. We're seeing cool stuff again, or, or, I don't know, like uh, uh, Blake Crouch writes, he's writing, like he wrote Recursion and Dark Matter. These are kind of cool views of the future of science fiction. Yeah. And uh, Mary Robinette Kowal um, wrote um, uh, the, the Lady Astronaut saga. And that's like an alternate history. It starts with a big meteor strike hitting Earth in the late 1950s. And it shows, it goes forward on how NASA's doing things in the future and and they bring women into the astronaut corps much earlier and it's just this that's an optimistic story you know i mean actually the world is being destroyed because it got hit by a meteor but it's an optimistic view of humans i mean i guess mine is a it's there's a difference between a uh, disaster story and a dystopia story disaster story nature did something to you dystopia humanity did something to itself right anyway so I guess uh, that's what I have to say about the state of science fiction over the past 10 years. <laughs> Too much dystopia. Glad to see it's coming to an end. Um, as we're winding down, Andy, I wanted to touch on your path to publication because I, I found it really interesting, um, the, the route you took and uh, ultimately to the sort of bestseller movie adaptation success that you, you now have. And um, I was wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about that and perhaps offer some advice for aspiring writers um, now that you've kind of talked about not believing in flashback and writing flashbacks for starters. Well, yeah, everything I say that you should never do as a writer, there's always an exception. Like, I don't like dystopia. Hate it. But I love The Handmaiden's Tale. And that's a dystopia, right? (laughs) Very much so, yes. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, I don't like political allegories. I, I, I don't like stories where the downtrodden where the main art where the main point is wealth divide right but i loved ready player one and that was very much in that vein you know so there's always there's always an exception to whatever broad strokes claim i make there's always going to be some story that's just so awesome that they did something with one of my forbidden topics that makes me love it you know anyway um my path to publication um was really weird and backwards i mean 
I always wanted to be a writer. Even when I was going to college, when I was 18, first going to college, I had to decide. I really liked programming computers, but I also wanted to be a writer. And I was deciding what, what direction do I want to go? Do I want to go with computer science or do I want to go with literature? And I decided I really like the idea of being a professional writer, but I also really like having regular meals. So I, I went into computer science and, and I don't regret it. I, I love I loved that field. I really enjoyed being a software engineer. I did it for 25 years, uh, but I also always loved writing and I was writing on the side. And at one point I even took a sabbatical off work. I wrote a book and tried to break into the industry. I failed, but I gave it a whirl. Anyway, so then it was a hobby that I did for a while. And um, so I was just writing and I started writing The Martian. It was in 2009, I think. And it was just sort of a a fun thing that I was doing. I was posting it a chapter at a time to my website. I had an email list where I could tell people when a new chapter posted. Um, I had a regular, I had about 3000 people on my email list, which sounds like a lot, but it took me 10 years of just writing short stories and other fiction and comics and stuff. took me 10 years to build up that list. So (laughs) Um, I really uh, enjoyed the writing though. And the Martian just took off. I, I, it's one of those, I wish I knew what I did right. I, my, my regular readers were hardcore dorks, like people who wanted me, you know, the sort of people who want you to show your work in a book and want everything to be scientifically accurate. So I wrote The Martian for them. I wrote them for this, this 1% of 1% of nerds who want to see the actual math. I never had any idea it would have mainstream appeal. I mean, it's basically an entire book of algebra problems and somehow it got mainstream appeal and I'm really glad it did, but I, I wish I could tell other, you know, aspiring writers, Oh, here's the magic formula that makes it work. All I can tell you is I, I kind of bungled into it <clears throat> and I still don't really know what I did. Right. Um, you also asked for some advice for writers. I have three bits of advice that I like to give writers. Um, number one, uh, you have to actually write in order to be a writer. You're, you can sit there and think about, all, you know, oh, the story's going to do this, and it's going to do this, and, and oh, here's my world building, there's this country and that country, and then there's this mountain range over here and stuff like that. You can think about that all you want, but until you're putting words into your document, you're not writing, you're daydreaming. And I mean, you have to plan out your story to some degree, but you don't even realize the problems that you have until you start writing it. It's when you start that first sentence and you're like, oh, crap, I just realized that my story doesn't make sense at all unless the reader understands that 5,000-year history I came up with for this land. How am I going to explain all that? And that's when you start finding the problems. Um, So you have to actually write if you're going to be a writer. Number two, resist the urge to tell your friends and family your story. You've got an idea. You're writing a book. You want to talk about it. And it's even harder when your family wants to know about it. Your friends or family, they're like, ooh, that sounds cool. Tell me more. Yeah, it's okay to tell them the basic premise, but don't give them all the details because um, most writers are driven by a desire to have an audience, to have someone else experience that story. If you tell your friends and family your story, then it satisfies that need and it it greatly reduces your your motivation to actually write it. So you can make a rule for yourself and say, the only way anyone experiences a story is by reading it. Now you can write it a chapter at a time and hand it to your friends and family to get that sweet, sweet validation that you crave, but don't just verbally tell it to them. And finally, a third bit of advice is there's never been a better time in all of human history to self-publish. There is no longer an old boy network between you and the reader. 
you can just, if you can't get it, I definitely recommend trying traditional publishing first um, because they're great at publicity and marketing and selling your book and getting it into the hands of reviewers and all that. But if you can't get any traction, can't get an agent, it's okay, self-publish it. It, it'll go directly to the readers. And if they like it, they'll recommend it to other people and so on and so forth. And then if you sell decently, sell a few thousand copies, maybe, maybe 10,000, if you're lucky, you go then to a publisher and you say, or start with an agent. But ultimately you're saying, I'm going to make a business case now for why you should buy my book and publish it. Because here, look, this is, these are my sales. So it's a proven, it's got a proven sales record here on self-publishing. Why don't you take it over, take it to the next level with your marketing and publicity engine? So those are my three bits of advice for writers. My final question is going to almost break your second rule, but I'll, okay. let, you, I'll let you answer it to, um, to your own satisfaction because I wanted to ask you what you're working on next. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't talk about what I'm working on next because um, I never really know if I'm going to finish it. Um, so for instance, back between, after I wrote The Martian, but before I wrote Artemis, I worked on a different novel called Zhek, Z-H-E-K, Zhek. And I worked on it for about a year and I got 70,000 words into it. For reference, The Martian is 100,000 words. And um, I got 70,000 words into Zhek until one day I realized it sucked. It wasn't any good. The characters weren't interesting. The story was going nowhere. I didn't really have a clear notion of where it was going. I was still in the first act. I mean, it was going to be this giant tome that nobody wanted to read. And so I gave up on it and wrote Artemis instead, which was definitely the right decision. But it shows you even a year into a project, it might not be the next book I publish. So I don't talk to people until I'm sure what the next, I'm sure I know what the next book is going to be. Well, Andy, thank you for talking to us about this book, which we both (laughs) tremendously enjoyed. Thanks so much. I'm glad you liked it. We've been speaking with Andy Weir, um, writer of, um, well, initially The Martian, but now what we've been talking about is his latest novel, Project Hail Mary. Um, Have you read it? Let us know what you think. In general, do you enjoy science fiction? You can WhatsApp us 018-789-8899, tweet us at BFM Radio, or write to us at buythebook at bfm.my. us to footnotes and of course as um, we've been doing we will uh, now spend the the last part of the show talking about our feelings about Project Hail Mary by Andy Weir Um, and I think it isn't too far of a stretch to say that we both really enjoyed the experience of reading it. Yes um, definitely I think uh, Andy covered a lot of the plot earlier in our interview and I think that really the plot is such a strength and um, the fact that even though I know deep in my animal brain that I don't understand the science all that well and that if I were put in Ryland's position I'm not going to be able to replicate anything he does not even with not even with the epoxy <laughs> the word I was going to use. Um, yeah, I, I don't think that I would be able to replicate the, the experience of the science, but um, for the story and for the, the forward motion of it, um, I understood more than enough, right, to, to feel like I understood the story. And I think um, above and beyond that, it's a good tale. I, I really wanted to know what was going to happen. I found myself eager to return to it, to know um, what new adventures and new problems our heroes were going to, to encounter on 
on the day and I loved Rocky. So um, I, I made no secret of that earlier. But I, I think that the the first third maybe of the book, Ryland's more or less alone and um, the other characters enter in flashback. And I think that Rocky um, enters the story just at the right time, right? In order for you to go, oh, okay, so... Um, if it had just been the first premise, um, a guy wakes up with amnesia, realizes he's in space, might have to save the planet, that sort of thing, um, it would still have been fascinating. But when you realize that there's an additional element, you're like, ah, oh, okay, here we go. I completely agree. I got to say that uh, the, f- the the initial jump into the book for me, um, at least the first few chapters, I found it a little not tough. Um, I wasn't entirely hooked and I, I'm not sure why. Um, but if you feel that way, I would really say just give it a little bit more because once the plot grab ho- grabs hold of you, once you understand what's at stake, once you understand the flashback structure, um, then there's no turning back. I couldn't, I couldn't put it down. Once I got into the story and started warming up, particularly to Ryland, um, and then when Rocky comes in, you just cannot stop because their relationship is really the best thing about the book. And I have to say that by the end, everything that you're supposed to feel, you know, the beats of the story, the fear, the uh, the tears sometimes, um, the joy of friendship. And and I found myself, and, and I think this is what I love the most, the fact that I'm reading a science fiction book. And I found myself laughing out loud so many times. This book is so funny. There are parts of this book that I was just cackling at. And, and I love that. I love that for science fiction. Um. I, I agree. I also think that um, Andy referenced hand-waving earlier and how, um, you know, at a certain point um, in the story, there is a, okay, I'm just not gonna, you know, th- this is not central, let's say, to the story I'm trying to tell, so let's just kind of sweep it away. Um, I I enjoyed that partly because I think the things that were swept away were exactly the things that I wasn't necessarily invested in. So, um, you know, for example, I think a lot of the Earth-based stuff, the funding and the international uh, cooperation is taken care of by a single character who is um, a sort of you know, catch all for authority, right? And, and has all of the world's authority kind of housed in one body. And I, I kind of enjoyed that partly because, um, and it links up to what uh, we heard Andy say about hopefulness as well, because I like the idea that we would all come together um, in order to solve this problem that is really a planetary crisis. Um, and I also like the idea that I don't have to sit through reams and reams of UN meetings and, you know, listen to what the president has to say and, and, and do all that stuff. Instead, it's bypassed with, with the correct kind of story hand waving as, you know what? It's a huge problem. Everybody acknowledged it's a huge problem and then they set off to solve it. And, um, I think, again, um, I keep referencing that forward motion, but that's because the story is very, very, uh, well, I, I don't know if this even counts as a pun. I feel like the story is very propulsive. And so because of that, you're, you're constantly wanting to know what happens next. And so uh, the short flashbacks, the lack of, um, you know, political turmoil and struggle, the the lack of depiction of the earth as, you know, a dystopian famine-stricken world, um, I didn't need that in order to understand the stakes. Oh, yes. And and I think the other thing about the book is that um, the science is treated the same way. And that's not a negative at all. Um, you know, there, you can tell, and, and if you were listening to the interview earlier, Andy Weyer is 
a huge science geek, right? So you get these sort of long explanations of how things work, but in the end, he often ends them with, in short, this is what happens. And none of these are actually weaknesses because I think that he writes a particular kind of sci-fi where the science is sort of the background of what's happening. It's great if you understand it. And if you don't, it's fine because then there's the shenanigans between Rocky and Ryland and that's what you're really there for. That's perfect because that's really what keeps the story going. And I think in many ways, um, the word hope is is really a good one to describe this novel, but also the writing style. Um, and, and I was very excited to hear Andy actually talk about how um, that's something that he values in sci-fi, because uh, this book entirely is um, the tone of the book. You know, despite world ending things happening, the tone of this book is never dark. The tone of this book is never gloomy. There's always a laugh to be had. There's always a wry remark around the corner, um, you know, and and even in a spaceship, even when they're talking about compounds and molecules, um, it's never done in a heavy-handed, um, overly self-serious way. And I and I don't know whether it's just the times that we're in or the fact that um, the fact that science fiction also has gotten so hard and so uh, edgy in some ways that it's nice to read a book that has hope and friendship at the heart of it. Yes. Uh, also, I think that the, uh, you know, we spoke quite a bit about tropes. And I do feel that the book shies away from that in many ways. And one of the ways in which it does that is that it refuses to engage in the um, crises after crises, um, you know, kind of approach that I think a lot of space books tend to take, right? You go up and then suddenly it's like your ship just refuses to react or um, there are all these ways in which space travel goes wrong. But the ways in which this particular journey kind of twist and turn, they make sense. Um, they don't feel like cheap shocks. They don't feel like things that are there just to further the story. Um, I enjoyed that. And I also wanted to just close off um, my remarks, at least, on something that we brought up earlier as well, which was the dystopia. So I think that the appeal of dystopia, of world-ending novels sometimes is for us to find out what we would do in those scenarios, um, you know, to feel like, what would we do if we were tested? And I appreciate the hope that Project Hail Mary brings because more often than not, when we're overrun by zombies, we uh, lock ourselves up in a prison and turn on one another, you know, um, or whatever it may be, right? Like you have colonies of people in dystopias that are deeply unhappy, um, that were not ready. And I think that with Project Hail Mary instead, it isn't just the fact that humanity banded together. Um, it's the fact that you have a hero who isn't going to mm, throw somebody into the airlock to save himself, you know? Um, there's that... Who cries when he finds that people have died. I love that. that yeah, and so I think... Um, I really, really appreciated that, that this idea of when we are tested, we don't turn violent and strange, you know, instead we try to solve problems and we remember our roots as a school teacher. So the rights for the book have already been sold. Um, you know, it, it, it's a it's it's a Hollywood project at this point. I just wanted to close by asking you um, whether you're excited about the, a potential film because I'm so excited. As I was reading the book, I could already imagine scenes, and and I dearly, dearly want to see this played out on a good film. 
Uh, I think it would be such a fun watch. Um, I I can imagine it just being the premise itself is so fascinating, and I think there's a lot of it that would make for um, really cool sort of sciency, <laughs> you know, uh, shenanigans, right, on a ship. Um, I I do wonder though how they're going to make Rocky look because uh, we didn't get too much into it and I don't necessarily the first time you see Rocky in the book is a moment and I don't mm. want to take that away um, but I think Rocky has the potential to be quite scary <laughs> and um, yeah. you know if, if depicted like as written right um, Rocky has the potential to be quite scary or perhaps just a little um, difficult to imagine in real life on screen and so I'm curious how they'll do that. We've been just uh, mini-reviewing Project Hail Mary by Andy Weir, uh, following our interview with Andy a little earlier. Let us know, have you read the book? Is that something you're looking forward to? Um, What other science fiction do you enjoy? You can WhatsApp us, 018-789-8899, tweet us at BFM Radio, or write to us at bythebook at bfm.my. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.